page 965 on your pew Bible, if you're following along with that. So we uh, have been in the book of Titus, and last week uh, we were in chapter 1. Well, we're making our way into chapter 2, just by way of review. Uh, chapter 1 shows us the three G's of grace, godliness, and good works. What, what happens when there's grace and godliness and good works in the life of a church? Well, what we see from chapter 1 is that it results in the church being directed, it has good leadership, it's stable, and it's healthy. Well, today we're going to move into chapter 2, and we are still going to focus on the three G's of grace and godliness and good works, but we're going to shift the scene, because what happens when there is grace and godliness and good works in a person's home and at work? What are the results? Well, if you take a look at the chart behind me, you'll notice that three things result. First of all, the home and the workplace is sane. That's a good thing, right? Verses 2, 5, and 6. Number two, it's structured. 2, 3, 5, 6, and 9. That is, there is some order to it. And then number three, it is respected, verses two, three, and seven. That is, people on the outside looking in respect our home and respect our work in the workplace. So Titus chapter two, they are watching us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. We pray that your grace would be uh, uh, abundant in this place. Help us to not be distracted. May our minds be set upon your word and upon you and upon what it is that you have for our lives. Father, your grace to us is good, and it's a transformative grace that not only forgives us of our sins, but it causes us to become born again. We become new creations. The old man is gone, and the new man has come, and you are progressively working in us to make us godly and to produce good works. Father, in particular, in our homes, how desperately we need your grace. We need for you to make us godly, and we need for you to produce good works both at home and in our jobs, in our workplaces, wherever they may be, so that the word of God may be made to look good, and that we and the gospel may not be blasphemed or looked down upon, because indeed, people are watching. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and God's people said, amen. Well, friends, I just want to let you know something this morning. They're watching you, and they're watching me. We are being watched. Now, I'm not talking about our government, not talking about the NSA, though they may be watching us. I'm not talking about any terrorist group, ISIS or Al-Qaeda, although they may be watching us. Not talking about maybe some nosy neighbors that you have that tend to peek over the fence a time or two, though they may be. We are being watched. They are watching us. And I don't refer to the persons of our triune God, the Father and Son and the Spirit, though certainly he is. I don't refer to our enemy, the Satan and his demons, though they might be. I don't speak of our bosses, although they might be looking over your shoulder. I don't speak of our kids, though they most likely are watching you. And if you're a kid, I'm not talking about your mom and dad, although most likely they are watching you. Friends, they are watching us. We are being watched. Who is it, you may be asking, that is watching us? Well, all sorts of different people may be watching us, but this morning, if you name the name of Christ, you need to know that you are being watched by an unbelieving world. You are being watched by the lost. You are being watched by people who have never met Jesus, who don't name the name of Jesus, who don't profess faith in Jesus. They are watching you. They're watching your family. They are watching you at your workplace. They are watching you within the community. They may be, and I hope they are, curious. They may be curious about your faith. 
They may be antagonistic. They may mock your faith. Or maybe they just simply politely kind of put up with you being a religious person. Maybe they're even watching you to see you fail. But rest assured, friends, friends, rest assured, you are being watched. They're watching to see how you handle adversity. They're watching to see how you handle uh, that stubborn kid that doesn't seem to obey. They're watching you. They're watching to see how you handle your thankless job as you go to it day to day, and it may be mundane to you. They're watching you to see how you handle it. They are watching you as you deal with your less-than-ideal spouse. They are watching you. They're not just watching you in adversity, but they're watching you in success. They're watching how you handle your business growing. They're watching you to see how uh, you do when your kid comes home with straight A's or when they're the sports star on the team. They are watching you. I think this point is comically illustrated in a, a, a story that I came across this, this week, and it's a true story, and it's a man who wrote in to a show uh, via letter, and he, he wrote in saying this. He says, I was sitting at a stoplight this morning. The lady in front of me was going through the papers on her seat of her car when the light in front of her changed to green, and he writes, she did not obey its command. A green light is a commandment, not a suggestion. When the light turned to red, she still had not moved. And so I began with my windows rolled up, screaming and yelling and cursing and beating on my steering wheel. He writes, my expressions of distress were only interrupted by a policeman tapping against my window, against my protestation, saying, you can't arrest me for hollering in my own car. Well, he ordered me to get in the back of his car. After about two hours in a jail holding cell, the arresting officer advised me that I was now free to go. The man writes, I responded, I knew you couldn't arrest me for doing this. I was just yelling in my car. You haven't heard the, the, the last of this. The officer quietly replied, I didn't arrest you for shouting in your car. I was actually right behind you at the light. I saw you screaming and beating your steering wheel, and I said to myself, what a jerk. But there's nothing I can do to him. He's simply throwing a fit in his own car. And then the policeman said, I noticed the cross hanging from your rearview mirror and your bright yellow border around your license plate, which read, choose life. And then I noticed the Jesus is coming soon bumper sticker and the fish symbol on the back of your trunk. And I thought to myself, this guy must have stolen this car. (laughs) Well, friends, they are watching us. Today in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is going to show us really two things. First of all, the main thrust of this section is Paul is going to talk about what I call the routine of godliness. The routine of godliness for different Christians uh, within the church. In fact, he's going to look at five sets of Christians and describe for us, depending upon where you fall, what your and my routine of godliness should look like. In verse 2, he addresses the older men. 
In verse 3, he's going to address the older women. In verse 4, he's going to then turn to address the younger women. And in verses uh, 6 through 7, he's going to talk to the younger men. And then finally, in verses 9 through 10, he's going to address the behavior of the slaves who were Christians. And so, in the midst of this section where Paul is going to talk about behaviors and characteristics that is grace-produced, it's not just moralism, hey, do better. These are character traits of a man or a woman who has been changed by the gospel. He's going to say, this, this is what your routine should look like, but scattered both at the beginning and at the end and twice in between are four what I call rationales for godliness. So he's going to say, this is what the routine of godliness should look like. And then he's going to say, here are four reasons, four rationales for why we should behave that way. There are four of them, four statements, three of them, the tail end, the number two, three, and four, basically are all the same with different emphasis. And can you guess what numbers 2, 3, and 4 are? Paul is basically saying, you should have a routine of godliness. Are you ready? Because they're watching you, okay? Because you are being watched. So let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1, where we find the first rationale for godliness. Paul says this, You, however, speaking to Titus, you, however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. The first reason, the first rationale for this list of godly behavior in the church is simply this, because our behavior should reflect our belief. Because behavior should reflect belief. Paul essentially turns from the the errant teachers in the church that we looked at last week. They were teaching all sorts of bad things, if you remember that. And then he turns to Titus, and he kind of points a, a bony finger in his chest and thumps him. You, Titus, you, unlike them, you, however, you need to teach what is or the things that are appropriate or maybe fitting to sound doctrine. What he means is you need to teach them to behave in such a way that their behavior is in agreement with, their behavior is consistent with sound or healthy doctrine. What are those things that Titus is supposed to teach them? Well, we'll see in just a minute. It's found in verses 2 through 10, this whole list of godly behaviors. But you, you could say the point this way. You could say, you could say that our, our doctrine should, should impact our daily duties. Our convictions should, should shape our character. Our beliefs should affect our behavior. Maybe you've heard this little phrase. It seemed to be thrown out quite a bit when I was in high school in the sports world. People would say, in particular our coaches, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the what? Walk, right? So what does that mean? Well, it simply means if you're going to, in the sports world, if you're going to talk smack like some of the guys on our team like to do, not me, of course, I wasn't good enough to talk smack because <laughs> I knew I couldn't walk the walk. They could, and so they talked the talk. He's simply saying, listen, if you're going to chatter a little bit, then you better play well. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to chatter about what you say you believe and what you say the Scripture says and your standard, then, then you, you need to pursue living that way. Well, how about you, friends? Does your behavior reflect what you say you believe about God, about the Bible, about morality, about Christian faith, or is there a a gaping disconnect between what you say you believe and then what you do? Paul begins with this rationale. He says, listen, I'm going to give you a list of behaviors that are grace-empowered, godliness 
godly behaviors, but listen, your behavior should reflect your belief. In verse 2, we see the first group addressed. Teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and in endurance. So he begins with the older men of the church, teaching them what their routine of godliness should be. And he, he, he lists four traits. Notice number one, he says they should be temperate. It, it, can, it can mean literally you should be temperate in your use of alcohol, or it could mean figuratively sober, sober-minded, clear-headed, well-balanced. Regardless, older men should be both, right? So he says, be temperate. Number two, be worthy of respect. It simply means that the people in your community and in your church and your family, they respect you. You are dignified in their eyes. You have a seriousness of life and of mind. You could say you're not the class clown. Now, I don't know if you, in high school or junior high or college, you maybe were the class clown or maybe you had a class clown. I wasn't the class clown, but I was friends with some of the class clowns. And uh, what, what do class clowns do? Well, from my experience, they, they, they typically just kind of joke about everything, right? Everything's a joke. Everything is to be made fun of, even things that are serious, right? Even things that you really shouldn't joke about. And so they joke about even serious stuff, and consequently, no one ultimately takes them seriously. No one respects them, right? Because they don't take anything seriously. Paul says to the older men, listen, you, you need to have a seriousness about your purpose in life. Number four, you need to be sound or healthy in three areas. Sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. This simply means that the older men in the church should have learned through their experience that God can be trusted. They have a sound faith, a trust in God. Secondly, they should be compassionate and caring for other people. Increasingly, they should be increasingly less self-centered and increasingly more others-centered, sound in love and sound in endurance. That means as the years wane on, their profession and trust in Jesus and their hope of heaven gets stronger as they grow older. And so those of you who are here, and you may be considered an older man. Now, I won't tell you if you're old or not, right? You get to decide that. Paul's going to talk to older men, older women, younger men, younger women. You decide what you fall in. But if you are in this category, does this describe you? Has the grace of God through faith in Christ been working these character traits in you? Have you learned that God can be trusted? Are you compassionate, caring, kind? Is your faith unwavering? Well, he moves from older men and he moves right into the older women in verse 3 as he continues to talk about the routine of godliness. Likewise, he says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. And then he fleshes that out. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So the women, likewise, likewise, are to be reverent. I think it's a summary term. Like the older men are reverent in the way that they relate to God and to others, so the older women should be as well. And then he specifies three things. What are the three things that Paul says that the older women should be characterized by? Well, notice, not to be slanderers. That means they shouldn't be malicious gossips. They shouldn't be demeaning other people, right, by gossiping and slandering. Number two, he says they shouldn't be addicted to much wine. That literally means they shouldn't be a drunkard, right? Number three, but to teach what is good. And there's a transition here from verse three to four. He says that the older women specifically 
have a very important teaching ministry. And we're going to find out in verses 4 through 5 that that teaching ministry is to the younger women within the church. They're to teach them from their own experience how to live in their roles as wives and mothers specifically. I think about two ladies in a prior church experience that I had, two women that I think sum up what these older women in verse 3 should be. One of them, uh, her name is Kathy Glenn. You probably will never meet Kathy Glenn in your life, but if you do, uh, you have a great privilege and an honor. She is uh, a godly woman. She took me into her home when I was straight out of college, moving to the big city of Dallas. They took me in and fed me and gave me a place to live until I started school, and I'm forever grateful to her and her husband. Kathy was wonderful at training and mentoring young married women. We had a a kind of a young married couples uh, group at, at this church in Dallas. And uh, we had the privilege of sitting under her as she taught these younger women how to be moms, how to be wives, how to, how to be uh, workers in the world. I think of another woman by the name of Marsha Dunn. Sweet, sweet Marsha Dunn. She was the epitome of a kind-hearted person. She volunteered with me in my youth group, and she was invaluable. Her ministry was not to young married women, but to young single women, in particular, the girls in my youth group. She was like a mother to them, and maybe a grandmother, depending on how they saw her, right? But she was so good about teaching these young teenage girls what it means to live the Christian life. That's, that's what Paul is talking about. He's like, older women, See yourself in this vein. Number four, the younger women. Then they can urge the younger women. So what are the older women to teach the younger women to do? And consequently, what are the younger women to do? Well, he says, then they can urge their, the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Six things, right, that Paul gives as a list for the younger women to be taught by the older women. Number one, he says that they should teach them to love their husbands and children. Um, This doesn't mean that they are to teach them to feel emotional feelings about them, though certainly that follows. What Paul is talking about is practical, hands-on, day-to-day, minute-by-minute. What does it look like for a wife to love her husband and her kids? That's what the older women are to teach the younger. Number two, to be self-controlled. You'll notice that this is a repeat word. Paul told the older men in verse 2 to be self-controlled. By way of inference, I think he implies that the older women should be self-controlled. We're going to see the younger men should be self-controlled. Every Christian should be self-controlled. It simply means able to control your passions, able to control your desires. Number three, they're to be pure most likely meaning in a moral sense, but it could also mean sexually chaste or pure. They're to be faithful to their husbands. Number four, to be busy at home. Literally, it means they should be workers at home, which means, in, uh, in my opinion, it, that, that she should make her home and her family the priority of her life. Number five, she is to be kind. I think that speaks to her disposition as she's working with her family, with her husband, with her children. Number six, and to be subject to their husbands. It refers to her voluntary submission to her husband as unto the Lord. And so, younger women, may I speak to you now. Does this describe your relationship with an older woman? Maybe you say, I don't, I don't have an older woman to teach me these things. Let me encourage you. Find one. Look for them in our church. Look for them outside of our church, right? Find strong Christian women so that they can teach you these things.
So we've seen the routine of godliness, right? For the older men, for the older women, for the younger women, starting at the tail end of verse 5, we see another rationale. Why? Why are the younger women to behave this way to their husbands, to their kids? And by implication, why, are, why is any Christian to behave in a godly manner? Notice the tail end of verse 5. So that, it's the first so that statement, so that no one will malign the word of God. The second rationale for godliness he gives is this, because we don't want others to speak evil about the gospel that we say we believe and hopefully we're sharing with them. We don't want people to look at the good news that we're sharing about a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and to speak evil. Literally, it says that so that no one will blaspheme the word of God. Paul says we should care about our conduct because we care about what unbelievers think about the gospel that we share. Um, when I was in high school, I played a multitude of sports, and uh, in, in particular, our high school basketball coach. Every time that we would go on, a, on the road to play a game in the opposing team's gym, stadium, whatever it may be, every, every, every game, it's etched in my mind, he would say something to the effect of, Men, we're going out of town. When you go out of town, your behavior, number one, reflects upon you. He would say, number two, your behavior reflects upon your family. That is back home, or maybe they're in the stands. And number three, your behavior reflects upon the school, Banketty High School. Go Bulldogs, right? Um, go Mean Green, anyway. Uh, it reflects upon Banketty High School. So don't do anything. Don't do anything that would give the locals from the town that we're visiting, any reason to say anything bad about you, about your family, or about our town. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the same could be, say, could be said about our behavior and, and the relationship to the gospel, right? We don't give them any reason that they can speak poorly about the gospel that we profess. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and I'm sure you probably have too, from the lips of people saying they don't go to church, they don't believe in Christ, they're not Christians because Christians they have known have done this or have done that. They failed them, they hurt them. Uh, I've heard it many times. I'm sure you probably have too. And it pains me every time I hear that. Now certainly, this may be an excuse. It may be an excuse. It may be. However, as people who follow Christ, we have to, we can't just utterly dismiss that. We shouldn't just flippantly say, that's just an excuse. You don't want to go to church. Well, maybe there was something painful in their past. Maybe there was a person who, who professed faith in Christ that really did damage them. We have to recognize the merits of that. This is what Paul is saying. If, if our lives are no different than theirs, it reflects poorly on the power of the gospel to transform any life. So he's, he gives us a second rationale. We don't want outsiders to speak evil about the gospel we profess. Moving into verses 6 through 8, we get another address, uh, group addressed, and it's the young men. Notice as he describes the routine of godliness. Now to the young men, verse 6. Similarly, Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. There's our word again. In everything, set them an example. Now he's turning to Titus. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So, younger men, what does he say that they are to do? You might think they get off easy, because all he says is, be self-controlled. 
you're like, wait a minute, if, I, if I'm a young woman, I got like six things, and the young man got one? What's up with that? Well, well, not really, because what's going on is he's addressing the younger men via Titus. He's saying, Titus, you need to be an example to the younger men, right? You need to, to, to show them how to do these things. And it, it applies to the younger men as well, not just Titus, right? They're to be self-controlled. Paul turns to Titus and he says, you are to be an example. The word describes a stamping or, or maybe a making an, imp- an impression on a coin or on wax. What Paul is saying is, listen, Titus, you need to, st- to stamp or impress upon the life of these young men how to live. And then he describes two different things, good deeds and good words. Notice verse 7. In everything, Titus set them an example by doing what is good. It simply describes a whole host of good behavior. Number two, good words. In your teaching, Titus, and younger men, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So Titus's words, and consequently the words of the young men in the church, they were to be truthful. Their words were to be reliable. They were to be serious. They were to be sound. Young men, let me ask you, does this describe you? Are you learning to control your passions and your actions being self-controlled by filtering them through the filter of the word of God? Is your word reliable? Can you be trusted? Are you serious about the endeavors in your life? Consequently, who is your Titus? Who is leading you by example, by word? You may say, I don't have anybody. Well, find someone. Ask someone. Talk to them. Find a mentor relationship with an older gentleman or maybe someone your age who has a little more seasoning than you do. So, in verse 8, we get a third rationale. Why are the young men, why is Titus to have this kind of routine of godliness? Notice verse 8 at the tail end. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. You could say it this way. Because we don't want others to speak evil against us. The prior rationale was because we don't, want, we don't want people to speak evil against the gospel. Now he says we don't want people to speak evil against us, right? Younger men who are Christians are to be marked by self-control, good deeds, good words, so that in the words of Dr. Constable, so that it robs the enemies of the church of any reasonable grounds for criticism, they would be put to shame because they would have no factual basis for their opposition. Now notice what Paul is not saying here. It's important. Paul is not saying that we won't be criticized for our actions as Christians, because most certainly we will. Increasingly, as we go a different direction than the way of the culture, most certainly we will receive criticism from the lost. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is that when we are criticized for our actions, it will be a shameful thing. It will be utterly shameful to the people who are criticizing us because it's so clear to everyone that their criticism is utterly unfounded, right? Utterly unfounded. Maybe even spoken out of a desire to harm us. I ran across a story about a a hitchhiker, about a hitchhiker who was picked up uh, by a man in the truck whose name was John. Share the story. John was driving home late one night, and he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to be somewhat suspicious of the passenger whose uh, clothing and uh, demeanor was a little uh, off-putting. So John checked to see if his wallet was safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them, but when he did, it wasn't there. 
So he slammed on the brakes and he ordered the hitchhiker out and he said, hand over the wallet immediately. The frightened hitchhiker handed over the billfold and got out of the car and John sped off angrily. But when he got home, he began to recount the story to his wife about the man and how the man had taken his wallet and his, his wife interrupt, interrupted him said, well, honey, honey, uh, don't you realize that when you left, you left your wallet at home this morning? He had wrongly accused this man. And that's what Paul is saying. Those who criticize the behavior of the Christians should feel like John in the story, utterly ashamed of any false accusation. Well, he closes in verses 9 through 10. In verses 9 through 10, we see the fifth group describing the routine of godliness, and he addresses the slaves of the day. He says in verse 9, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So Paul here turns, and he addresses the slaves of the culture. And without going into much detail at all, let me just share with you, slavery in New Testament times was very, very, very different than the slavery that we are familiar with, in particular, the American slave trade. Very different. And so it's reasonable, I think, as we look at how Paul talks about how slaves should interact with their masters, that we apply that in our lives via the the work relationship, those who we work with and those who we work for. What were, in that culture, what were slaves supposed to do? Well, number one, they were to be subject. They were to obey their masters. Number two, they were not just to obey them, but they were actually, they were to try to make them happy. Number three, they weren't supposed to talk back to them. As one of my mother's friends growing up used to say, boy, don't give me no lip. That's what... Paul is saying to the slaves, don't give your masters any lip. Number four, don't steal from them. Interestingly enough, uh, the Roman orator Cicero complained that the people on the island of Crete, which is where this book is, is on, right? It's where Titus is. He complained that the Cretans actually didn't consider stealing to be immoral. And so as Paul addresses the slaves that were Christians, he's like, To steal is immoral, right? Number five, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So how does this apply to our life in the workplace? Well, again, I'd like to quote Pastor Chuck Swindoll. I think he helpfully applies this to our lives. He says this, Paul highlighted two areas that will make or break how we portray our Christian faith at work. Diligence and character. I don't know about you, but if you're a Christian, you want to care about how you portray your faith at work, right? He says, Christians should accomplish what is expected with a great attitude. We are to be subject without being argumentative. He writes, nothing cuts away at the morale of an organization like employees who harbor a negative spirit about the boss they work for, the people they work with, or the kind of work that they do. He says, whether manifested by by gossip at the water cooler, rudeness, or simply shoddy craftsmanship, how we accomplish the tasks before us, he says, reflect upon the God we serve. When we realize people form opinions of Christ based upon our actions or our inactions, office supplies simply won't find their way into our briefcases. Time on the clock won't be flippantly wasted. Expense accounts won't be padded. And embezzlements won't happen on our watch. Well, he closes this section with the fourth rationale for godliness. Why should all of us as Christians care about living a godly life? He sums it up by saying this, the tail end of verse 10, so that in every way, 
speaking of slaves, but let's apply it to Christians, this whole passage, so that in every way, why, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Attractive. You could say the fourth rationale is because we want to make the gospel more attractive with our behavior. The word translated attractive, it can be translated to adorn something or even to decorate something. Paul is saying we want to make the te- with our lifestyle, with our godliness, we want to make God's teaching about the gospel, we want to decorate it, right? We want to adorn it. When I think of decorating and adorning, I often think of Christmas time. I know Christmas seems a bit a ways away, but it's coming, right? Because you do what with a Christmas tree? You adorn it. You decorate it. And, and to me, the Christmas tree, whether it's a, whatever kind it is, right, a spruce or whatever, um, it has inherent beauty. Christmas trees, I think, are inherently beauty. I'm reminded, uh, beautiful. I'm reminded of this every time my mom and dad come to visit. So we're from South Texas, Right? And Christmas trees only show up at Christmas time, right? They're not native to South Texas. So my mom comes and she comments without fail every time she comes to Cisna Park. We're, we're taking a walk or driving around. She says, Look at the Christmas tree in that person's front yard. Look at the Christmas tree they have in their backyard. I'm like, Mom, it's not a Christmas tree. <laughs> She's like, Yeah, it's a Christmas tree. I'm like, Yeah, you're right. It is a Christmas tree. But up, but up here, it's not just used for Christmas, right? People have them in their yards. And she says, oh, I love those trees. So beautiful. I wish I could grow one in my backyard, right? I'm like, Mom, you're embarrassing me. Stop. Um, she loves Christmas trees because they inherently are beautiful, right? But, but, but we don't stop there. We cut it down, we take it to our house, and we adorn them. We decorate them, right, with all sorts of lights and glitter and bulbs and all sorts of things, right? That's what Paul is saying, that our behavior can do to the gospel. It can make it more attractive. We are to pursue the traits that Paul has described today, lastly, because we want the gospel to be as attractive as it can to the lost, so we adorn it. We decorate it with our good works, our good deeds, and our godliness. So, five groups, we've seen the routine of godliness, four motivations, four rationales. And I'll close where I began. Brothers and sisters, we're being watched. Unbelievers are watching you and they're watching me. Older men, they are watching to see if you are dignified, if you are honorable, if you are patient, and if you are abounding in trust and love and endurance. Older women, they are watching you to see if you are reverent, to see if you're taking younger women under your wings and teaching them. Younger women, they are watching you to see how you treat your husband, your kids, to see if you're kind. Younger men, they are watching your deeds and your words to see if you will be self-controlled or hormone-controlled. Employees, they are watching you to see how you treat your bosses and your coworkers and how you work. Yes, friends, we are being watched. And because we are, my prayer for us is that no one would be able to malign the word of God, that no one would have anything bad to say about us, and that we would, as Paul told Titus, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way by the way we live our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you come into our homes and into our workplaces to teach us what it looks like to be older men, older women, younger men, and to be younger women. And even you come into our workplaces to show us how we should interact with our employees and our work. Give us your grace. This is not a list just of to-dos. 
These are grace-produced, godly traits that you, through the gospel and through our walking with you every day, they are manifested increasingly so. And so give us great grace. Father, we want to make the gospel attractive in every way possible. So help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week, guys.